Did you? Were they there? Matt asked me about them on Sunday evening. Maybe I didn't look for it. Okay. Well, I'll ask him about it. Yeah, but he, that's his own deal. Okay. So, so it wouldn't be on that. The other one, I don't know how we'll find it. Okay, I'll talk to Matt. We'll make it, try to make it obvious on the front page. Okay, so this is then the spiritual disciplines of Scripture. Um, you know, we went over really quick last time. Uh, the the, the uh, affirmations of Scripture. We didn't talk about those very much. Uh, let me just briefly mention those again because those do relate uh, to what we'll talk about today. Uh, one is, so it says fundamental uh, letter E, fundamental affirmations of Scripture. Uh, do you all see that? Is everybody there? Okay, fundamental affirmations of Scripture. Uh, one is that it's infallible and inerrant. I think we mentioned that while it's important, why it, what those two things mean, and then why it's important uh, to have both of those stated, because some people will say the Word of God is infallible, but it's not inerrant. Uh, Do you all remember that? Infallible meaning that it teaches spiritual truth, and it's reliable, but it can have all kinds of historical errors and other, other kind of errors, which make it not inerrant, which we would say you can't have that. I mean, how can you trust it for... If it can't be accurate in, in those kind of details, then we trust it to, in the more important details uh, that there aren't errors that have crept in and mistakes. And so therefore, uh, so anyway, so it's important that we understand it is infallible and it is uh, inerrant. It's also unified, speaks with one voice from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the unity of Scripture is huge. And, and again, I think we, we at least briefly mentioned why the unity of Scripture is also a great apologetic uh, uh, reality is to the to the divine nature of Scripture, the supernatural nature of Scripture that's unified. I mean, the, when you think of the composition of Scripture in in terms of the the period of time, the span uh, over which it was written, uh, not to mention what its content entails, which is from creation to the end of creation. Hi, Tammy. Uh, to um, you know, all the prophecy. Uh, to all the prophecy uh, that's there. I mean, the unity of Scripture, anyway, the unity of Scripture is absolutely uh, important for us to grasp. Uh, it says there on number three, no part of Scripture will contradict uh, the other part of Scripture. Uh, if it ever we come to a part, Bill, this had just somewhat to do with what you and I were talking about at the end of last week, but uh, if ever we come to a part in, in, of Scripture where there seems to be a discrepancy or it seems to be a contradiction, uh, the unbeliever, or one who's acting in unbelief, or a particular liberal, automatically, what is their first assumption? Where's the problem? In the Bible, right? The problem is with Scripture. It's not, the, it's not them that's the problem, it's Scripture. But what is the right assumption? Not, not a trick question. Right, right. So the, the problem, the, the right assumption is to say, well, like, if, if we really believe this, then our assumption is, our, not only our assumption, our conviction is that, then that, that means I need to do some more work to try to understand this because it's not, the, the, the error is not in Scripture. The error is with me. The cop-out, the easy thing to do is just assume you know, some error with the Scripture. That's where liberals want to go because that, they're already predisposed that way. 
right? Because they don't truly believe that to be the word of God um, in, in a real sense. And not just liberals, just unbelief. Um, you, you know, so many examples could be given of that. But uh, anyway, the point is, is that to understand the unity of Scripture means that it speaks with one voice from beginning to end, and we understand that each part fits together in perfect consistency and in perfect harmony. And so there, there, there are no contradictions. Uh, that it's clear, perspicuous, uh, and that therefore it is authoritative and it is sufficient. And I think we, we read that last quote there, which I love, uh, from MacArthur. Where he said, too many people, and this is number four under E, under sufficient. Too many people uh, in evangelical churches and schools today simply assume that certain difficult problems they encounter are beyond the purview of Scripture. The real problem is that they are not really devoted to Scripture. They haven't committed themselves to the daily reading and application of the Word of God. Thus, they lack genuine discernment and biblical understanding. If they truly studied Scripture, they would know that it is the Christian's one true source of spiritual strength and wisdom. It is the all-comprehensive resource God has given us for dealing with the issues of life. When Christians abandon that resource, it is no wonder they struggle spiritually. And I think that we would affirm, I'm going to assume everybody in here, maybe maybe not. uh, I can speak personally, and I'm going to assume my experience is everybody's experience here, that the more I understand Scripture, the more when I am diligent in Scripture to be growing in my understanding, there, there's nothing in life that it doesn't deal with. There's nothing in life that it doesn't give me instruction and bear light on and give me direction. Uh, uh, there's nothing there, either by direct statement, by principle, by illustration, uh, by precept. Uh, it's, it's there in the Word of God or simply in those areas where there is no human answer the, the trust that it gives me, Jason and I were just talking about this, in the character of God and the wisdom of God is more than sufficient to comfort my heart and to keep me from being given over into anxiety or worry or fear or anger or whatever emotion might, might be. So scripture is more than sufficient, not only in terms of leading us in righteousness in this world, but leading us to the knowledge of God uh, that gives us that spiritual strength and stability in those things that are always going to remain a mystery to us, uh, and particularly the providence of God. One of my favorite statements is uh, from the from the Puritan era: "Is the strange providence of God, and so much of His providences are strange in the sense that they don't fit into the way that we would view life or think that things should work, uh, but but they but they do work in God's plan." So this, I just want to mention these. It would be great to spend a lot of time on it, but um, those are some affirmations that we really need to hold on to, and they're directly related to our view of inspiration. I was talking to, there was a young man who's uh, distant relatives in this camp when we were staying with the, he, he preaches, he's a young guy, and he, he preaches, and so we were, we were just talking a little bit, and so I was just kind of asking him some questions, and so he... Um, how does he, you know, he's, what did he say, how he studied scripture? It was basically like, well, you know, I just read, or, you know, put something on my, and then he goes and he, and he preaches. And uh, just very subjective, very, uh, very, uh, you know, just kind of, how do I feel about this? And, and the spirit, of course, does work that way. But one, one part of that discussion, then, is our view of inspiration uh, if we really take that serious, is that every word of God is inspired. 
right? So if we're just kind of bouncing around all the way to what we feel, guess what? We're going to miss a massive part of the Word of God, aren't we? You're just going to miss it. And, and that really then denies your view of inspiration. Because if it's all inspired, then it's all important and we need to know it all. And all of it is worthy of our study and attention. And uh, no part of it can we just skip over without uh, doing uh, a disservice to our understanding of the revelation of God and ultimately the revelation of Christ that's in it. So it's important that we understand inspiration. And then that, of course, has to do with the unity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and so forth. Does that make sense to, to everyone? So inspiration is really, and I mean, it's really crucial that we have uh, a grasp, uh, a grasp on that. Um, that leads in then to this, uh, these spiritual disciplines of Scripture. Uh, so, if God has revealed Himself in Scripture, if he, and if eternal life is, you can quote John seventeen three. This is eternal life. Can put anybody on the spot? Really? Okay, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, could you finish it, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, right? That they may know, that, that's what eternal life is. And so, if we looked behind that just a little bit, then a, a fruit of regeneration and having the life of God is to want to know him, right? That's the other part of it. it so then behind that prayer is that somebody who knows, who has eternal life, wants to know God and wants to know Jesus Christ in his sin. There, there's something in you that, that relationally and, and from the soul that, that just wants to know who he is and not, not simply wants to know who he is, but really needs to know who he is. There's a, there would be a constant inner unrest and dissatisfaction and anxiety uh, where, where we're deficient in that knowledge, right? So it's, it's the knowledge of God uh, and who he is that really should always be our prayer. This is a total side note, but that's really that whole idea is behind, for example, then James 1.3, consider it all joy, my brethren, that when you encounter various trials. How can, you can, how can you count it all joy? You can't count it all joy if your goal in life is to have peace and comfort and no problems and to think that's how God should work. You won't count it all joy. If your goal in life is to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, then you can count it joy... Because, as he says, these various trials do what? That they may have their perfect result. In other words, in you, in perfecting your faith. So do you see how those things connect together? How can you uh, rejoice in your weakness uh, and know his strength, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12? I, I boast in my weakness. I'll rejoice in that. Because when I'm weak, he is strong. How can that happen? Well, that can't happen from somebody who just wants to kind of flit through life and sees every trial and discomfort and everything in their life that doesn't match up to what their desires are as an inconvenience or somehow God is just you know, against me or whatever. But when we have a right view of God and we want to know him, then those becomes the means that we understand. Hopefully, as we mature in the faith, we can understand not down the road, but in the moment, doing this to mature and to perfect me. In, in whatever I'm feeling or going through, he's perfecting me. And I want to be perfected. I want to know him. And I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know him more broadly and deeply. And so God uses trials then to do that. So now, now how does that connect here? Well, if, if that is the goal of our spiritual life is to know him, that's not simply just kind of some, you know, you know mystical kind of thing. There is a subject, obviously there's a subjective. When, when the psalmist says, God is my refuge and my strength, that's, that's an emotional statement. 
right? He's not saying he runs off to some physical place and he hides. He's saying inwardly, I find a stability to my emotions. I find a place where I am not fearful, but trusting, where I'm not weak, but I'm strong. That's what he's saying. That's a, that's a, that's a totally a subjective statement uh, when you read through the Psalms. Well, God is my refuge. He's my strength. He's my rock. Uh, that means the, the spiritual stability that I find in him and his strength. Well, so all of that relates to, to these spiritual disciplines of Scripture in this way. That's directly tied to how well we know God and his word. Right? It's not like we just kind of sit off somewhere and then God just does that inside of us. We'd be nice, right, if he just zapped us with the knowledge of God. It's not, that's not how it works. That is a fruit of our knowledge of God as he's revealed himself in his word. And so by being diligent students of the word... God uses that together with the providences in our life to mature us, to make us more like Christ. Not only in our knowledge of the word, but in our obedience to it. And so that's how it works. And so then that is why Peter could say, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you might grow and respect the salvation. It is the very connection that we have with God. I remember somebody in a conversation, uh, this was in seminary, and it was, we were, I think we were eating lunch or drinking coffee or whatever, and this, this, this uh, friend said this in a conversation, and it's like, wow, that, was, that really was helpful to me. Uh, he said, the word is our connection with the Father. And I never really thought of it that way, but it is. The word is our connection with the Father and, and with the Son, because that's where he speaks to us. That's where he reveals himself, and that's where we go through the word, and, and of course by the Spirit, um, to, to develop our communion with him and our fellowship with him and our obedience to him. So that directly then relates to these spiritual disciplines that we're going to, uh, to mention. Uh, so, so to have this kind of knowledge of God requires a regenerate heart, but also discipline, discipline of life, uh, discipline of our mind, discipline of our time, discipline of our priorities, discipline of our entire life. So that means then, if our lives are too crowded to apply, um, now we all have busy seasons, right? We all have that, but I'm talking about the pattern of life, the overall pattern of life. If it uh, is because of things uh, that are in our, within our control, too busy to develop habits of reading and prayer and meditation and study, then we have too much going on in life. It, then it becomes an issue of priorities. Uh, that would be then when we would want help or maybe in ourselves to evaluate our lives and, and see what are the priorities that we've set in our life and what do we need to give up. But the point here simply is that there needs our priorities in life. Uh, and the most basic uh, discipline of Scripture, and, and remember, y'all stop me at any time or I'll, I'll keep going, but just stop me. The most basic, basic discipline of Scripture, of the Word, is... The point number one there, reading. reading, right? It's just that that's that's base. We can't be growing in our knowledge of the word. We can't everything that I just knowing him and how he communicates himself to us, and that's the the, the very core of our spiritual life. None of that happens if we're not reading scripture. If we're not reading it, we have to be reading. Of all other disciplines, you can't study it if you're not reading it. You can't memorize it if we're not reading it. We can't meditate on it if we're not reading it. We can't do any of these other things if we're not reading scripture. So we need to be reading scripture. It needs to be a a, a regular habit uh, in our lives. 
And there are, of course, different ways that we... And, this, and so uh, Whitney does a very good job of this and a very thorough job in his book, Spiritual Disciplines. He has two chapters on Bible intake and reading as a part of what he speaks about. Um, there are different ways that we can read. And, uh, and, and again, I, I, I'm going to assume that I'm somewhat speaking to the choir here, but uh, you just will figure this out as you grow in your, I mean, just in your, in your life. You'll, you'll fit into those. You realize that there are times where you just are reading broadly. There are times, and if you can fit these together, you can't. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Uh, but you read more slowly and narrowly. Um, but the point is, is that you're always reading, reading scripture, and uh, and that. Morning, or you read at night. Uh, how many night people do we have? Anybody? Anybody here? Night people? Mariana, you're, y'all are all night people. <laughs> okay. Well, oh well. I guess there's fewer morning people here. Uh, of course, y'all know I'm not a night person. I'm a morning person. So for me, that's better in the morning. I try to read at night, uh, either books or uh, scripture. But uh, you know, that's that generally has a shorter time period on it. But in the morning, uh, I can do that. So if you're a night person, then it may be that at night that works better. It's really just knowing ourselves and what works. But the important thing is that we read scripture. Go on, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on those things. Uh, I, I'm really going to trust that if you're reading Whitney, you're going to fill in those gaps and, and address that. There, there's a lot there that would be fun to talk about, but for time's sake. What I really want to do tonight, spend most of our time, is on number two there, studying scripture hermeneutics. Now, let's see, Jason, Kathleen, have you gone over to Parker's? for? Okay, Bill and Lolita, y'all have. And uh, Shannon and uh, Michaela. And you have, Mariana. Have you, Salem? Salim? Okay. Uh, well, anyway, so those who have been there, you, you've already talked about this uh, a lot. Uh, you, some, I don't know how far you've gotten in that. But this is going to be a very general overview, but hopefully some helpful uh, principles for us to remember. There's, of course, far... Well, how, how late do we go? 8.30? 8.30. Okay. So there's obviously a lot more here than we will cover in any real depth. But uh, hopefully this is at least, if you, have, if you want to stop at any point, do that. Some of them I'll give illustrations for, some I won't. Uh, but there's a lot to cover So uh, in, in 45 minutes. But let's go over some of these principles. But, but before so, let me, let me emphasize that our knowledge of God through his word must move, of course, beyond only re- it also requires study. Like any other written document, Scripture was written in, a particular, in particular places during particular circumstances, using particular languages with particular words, and has particular cultural factors. And moreover, Scripture is from our, from our infinite God who has developed His promises and their fulfillment progressively laying foundations from Genesis moving on through Revelation, laying foundations in earlier parts that are, that are then built on, as we talked very briefly in the content of Scripture, when we looked at some of the covenants that God made with His people. Uh, the, the promise that He made in Genesis 3.15, but then beginning with the covenants that He made. There was a Noahic covenant some for the major ones, the, the Abrahamic covenant, and then you remember the Davidic covenant. And all of these were... Um, very important covenants that God was building off through the progress of revelation of his, uh, throughout the history of Israel, ultimately culminating in, in the person of Christ and, uh, and so forth, and then in the new covenant. But the point is, is God has done that progressively. 
and so the study of Scripture is, is the step beyond uh, simply reading. And we also have mentioned earlier on in the spirituality of the word that there's not only is it important to know the truth, but there's also uh, error, right? How, many, how much of Scripture is, is focused just on the fact that there's error? And how do we combat error? By knowing, knowing Scripture, right? By knowing the truth. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. He's talking to somebody who's a pastor there, but the principle applies to every Christian. Uh, uh, approved before God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And there's a statement. I first heard it from my old pastor, MacArthur, but I've since read it, you know, since before then. It's a statement that's been around for a while, actually since the Reformation, maybe before. But it is this. It's that the, the meaning of Scripture is the Scripture, the meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. So if we don't have the meaning of Scripture right, we don't really have the Scriptures. So with all of the Bible verses we might know, if we don't understand the right meaning of them, then we don't really have the Scriptures. We don't really have the Word of God. Uh, I think one, one way that that was the most really struck me is uh, a, a long while back I read... Uh, so I, I had read through Rick Warren's uh, Purpose Driven Life, and then I was actually doing it for research. And, and then I, I read through one or two of Osteen's books. But, uh, I even forget the names of it. One of them is Your Best Life Now, or whatever. And I just remember, particularly with Osteen's book, I mean, it was in both, but particularly with Osteen's book, I mean, there's scripture all over the place. I mean, all over the place. I mean, you can't, I mean, scripture, scripture, scripture. From all these, you know, just crazy variety of uh, like the NIV, the message, the living Bible, and then maybe one or two would be like an ESV or an American thing. But it was just all over the place. But I'm reading through some of this and I'm thinking, and, and this is not an exaggeration the way that I, it stuck in my memory. Almost no verse did he take in context. He, he misused almost every single verse there. You're just reading through this going, but that's not what he meant. That's not what he meant. That's a wrong use to apply. So there was scripture, but to somebody who's never studied it or is under good teaching, what, what are you going to hear? Uh, well, look at all those Bible verses. He must, be, he must be right. And so that's where discernment comes in, and that's why the, the study of scripture is important. I mean, how many of you have sat through sermons? I've heard them, uh, right? Tell me, how many of you have sat through sermons where you're just listening and going, that's not what that means. That's not what that means. That's not what that means. Uh, I think all of us have done that, and it's just—it's <laughs> it, crazy. So that that relates into the study of Scripture, and I think the most powerful example of that in Scripture of w- the importance of this, and I, I'm not is in the temptation of Jesus. Right? You know, it was one of the most powerful ways or illustrations of the way that Satan manipulates Scripture. It is in the temptation of Jesus. Did Satan miss? He quoting from Psalm ninety one. Did he misquote Psalm ninety one? No, he actually didn't. The way he quoted Psalm ninety one was completely legitimate. If you go throughout the, the Gospels, there's free quotes. Sometimes they're quoting from the, the, the Masoretic text. Sometimes they're quoting from the Septuagint. Sometimes they're quoting imprecisely. You know, in Scripture, it's not always like it's it's not word for word. So the way that that the words that he used, Satan did, were completely legitimate. He didn't he, he didn't fail on that part. What did he do? He took out contents and he changed the intent of it. He changed the intent of it. The intent of Psalm ninety one was of the faithful servant's trust in God that no matter what 
uh, at, uh, um, trial, no matter what uh, kind of suffering, no matter what kind of uh, price might be paid for faithfulness, that God will carry up and uphold his faithful servant. Satan used it to do what? To presume, go say it. To presume upon God. I'm sorry, I'll give you more time next time. To presume upon God, to put God to the test. And that was Jesus' answer. But it's good, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the point, the point there is, is now if you took that tactic of Satan and you put it in a Joe Osteen book or any other kind of false teacher, what are you going to do? Well, if somebody doesn't know scripture, how are they going to know that Psalm 91 was taken out of context? You see, you see the point? We have to know scripture. So that when somebody uses the word of God wrongly, we have to know it to be able to say, that's not right. You're using that wrongly. You're not applying the correct principles. Those who would say that women can teach in ministry, the egalitarian, who say there's no distinction there. God has put no distinctions within a marriage and within his church uh, as far as roles go. Why? Because the argument is, uh, one, is in First Timothy 2, that's a cultural issue. Well, there are very simple principles that you can argue back from that to show that it's not a cultural issue, it's a creation mandate. That's, a created, that's related to created order. It's not related to the culture at Ephesus. There are other passages that are. If you go to 1 Corinthians 10 or 11, there, there are issues there related to the culture. Um, but if we don't know the principles, we're not going to be able to have those conversations. And so that's the point. Okay, so there it is. Stop me again at any time. What is... Yes, Lolita. So that... That's preserving spirit to make sure that we are... ...to see where we need to be when we do the scripture, like you were saying. So I'm yeah. supposed to be reading, 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 and now I'm supposed to also be studying these things by faith principles. Obviously, I know there are times that you're going to read it. So how do you learn the principles to do that? Right? Or how do you know those principles are correct? Okay. Uh, well, one is you show up on Tuesday night and you listen to it. <laughs> the other is, uh, one, one just very basic answer to that, that that I think is helpful is to understand that we treat, as, you, and as you'll find looking at these principles, you treat Scripture in one sense as a human book. In other words, God wrote real words in a real context, in a real culture, using real grammar and, and all of that stuff, and the normal range of human language. And Look at some of those. You would translate any ancient doctor, doctor, uh, document like that. Uh, the, the funny idea that people have when they come to Scripture is like you, you're in this whole other world of principles that you can treat it like this spiritualized book uh, is, is false, is wrong. Um, so one is just if you treat scripture, so you've heard of historical grammatical, right? Has everybody heard of that? Exegesis. Basically, if you were looking at a document from Cicero or some other ancient writer, Tactus, or, or just any, some other ancient writer, you would use those same principles. If you wanted to understand what he said, you, you, you would want to understand the language that he's using, who he's writing to, the context that what he was writing. That's how you would understand him. That's how we understand uh, Scripture. So that's one level of it, is these are not secret uh, principles. Um, 
I mean, these aren't some like unique principles that we apply only to Scripture and we don't apply to anything else. That's one part of it. Uh, the second part of it, in terms of um, the, the role of the Holy Spirit, right? Is that what... I don't want to answer... Give the wrong information. So the first part was how do we know those principles are true? What was the second part was how do we... Okay, yeah, sorry, yeah. So the role of the Spirit... Yeah, so tell, and tell me if I'm scratching the itch here, but uh, the role of the Spirit is to give... Uh, the understanding of that passage in a way that we, we grasp internally how it applies to us and it elicits in us uh, a desire to obey and to respond in faith. So, for example, as I've mentioned this several times, a liberal can explain that many of the helpful works from the, from the um, humanistic side or really the principles that came out of that uh, like uh, exegetical work are done by liberal scholars. Some are really good. I mean, you use those commentaries for cultural things and historical things. But their conclusions are totally wrong because they're not based on faith. They're not based on a genuine trust in Christ. So there's no spiritual discernment at all. There might be a lot that's helpful there in terms of data and in terms of research, but there's nothing that's helpful there spiritually. So when he says a natural man does not understand the, the things of God, that means he can't spiritually appraise them there. It doesn't mean he can't understand them, and it doesn't mean that he can't understand them in great detail and with great accuracy in terms of the detail of, of it as a human document. But then they will totally reject it. So they have no spiritual discernment that goes with it. And so that's the kind of thing that the Spirit does. He gives a spiritual discernment. He gives, um, he gives uh, that inward response of faith, essentially. Um, and in terms of how we're protected then from error, if we've grown up... Well, that, that ultimately is a work of the Spirit in that he might draw someone out who's maybe in a bad church. Uh, there's, there's the providence of God that when he's, somebody's genuinely his, he, he'll draw them out. He'll put them into the context where they learn this. Uh, um, they correct the error that they've learned and they come to a right knowledge. Uh, that's really the, the only... He pulls people out of bad churches and he puts them in good churches. He brings somebody their way and helps them to put the pieces together in a way that they couldn't before. Um, I don't, does that... It's helpful. Yeah. There's not... There's really... Uh, yeah. Anybody else want to add to that or uh, maybe... It's a very helpful... Mm-hmm. You're going to start from the beginning, and you're going to start to understand exactly what's uh, 
the way uh, he was uh, teaching us, like, we um, apply all these principles that he's teaching us, it's a big help. Obviously, that's with the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's the one who's going to gonna guide us to, to the truth. So um, I can see that on my own experience. Right. So the Spirit of God in applying those principles, a spiritual sense of it, where it enacts your faith, right? So that, that's what we're, so the Spirit of God does that. But you're saying, I think, it also in terms of if you're in a false environment, how do you know that somebody else, how would somebody else know that what they were, what, what they were learning was false and be led over to the truth and to know that those are the true principles? Well, it's the same thing. The Spirit of God affirms that uh, by faith. And if the belie- person is a believer, uh, he brings them that knowledge and he affirms it to them. Uh, there's that what uh, like Miriam is talking about. Uh, it, it just affirms it. Well, let's let's look at these. So, a definition, uh, a science and art of interpretation. That's probably the, the simplest uh, definition. Uh, essentially, a number five. There, it's rules and principles that direct, instruct, and govern the effort to understand what the Bible means by what it says. Uh, now, danger, some dangers of bad hermeneutics. We've mentioned this. We'll just kind of run through this list. I'll give maybe an example or two along the way. One is the danger of uh, misapplication. Uh, let, me, let me give one example uh, that I'd read about. A Christian in military service read his Bible one morning to get his verse for the day. Later, he turned up AWOL. When he had been located and dealt with in due military fashion, one of his buddies asked what had possessed him to pull such a thing. He replied, I read the word to get some guidance for the day. The verse I read said, Arise, get you out from this land. So I took that as God speaking to me, and I got out of this place. In this case, he read Genesis thirty-one thirteen, a verse which in its context was intended to apply specifically to the case of Jacob, not necessarily to another person. That's kind of silly, but that's how the Bible is treated so very often. Uh, let me let me give one other example. Uh, the Dallas Morning News one morning in March of uh, 1964 ran the story of a woman who was one of four candidates for governor of Texas in the Democratic par- primary. She t- the story told her told how she was convinced that the Bible told her she would win the nomination. She had received the official list of names from the Texas State Democratic Committee and seen her name printed last. You know where this is going. She read in her Bible the words of Matthew 19.30, Many that are first will be last, and the last first. And that was enough for her. She felt she had a word from God that she was going to be first. Needless to say, she, she had misapplied the verse. Well, those are uh, kind of funny. There's, uh, I had uh, this, Ellie, this is several years ago, made the statement that Bethany and Brooke's life verse is, The older shall serve the younger. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the point is, is that there's a danger of misapplication. Those are somewhat humorous, but I think we realize that people treat the Bible like that. It's almost like this just magic thing. I'm going to open it up. 
the danger of abusing Scripture. Here's an example uh, taken from uh, uh, someone else, but here's an example. I heard, this is a quote, I heard another example of allegory that was out of control at a conference where one of the speakers talked about John 11, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. This was his interpretation. Lazarus is a symbol of the church, and what we have here is a vivid picture of the rapture of believers. The resurrection of Lazarus is the church going through the rapture. Afterward, the speaker came up and said, John, uh, okay, this was MacArthur. Did you ever see that in a text before? I tried to be honest, but dis- diplomatic. And he, he said, you know, I doubt that anyone has ever seen that in a text before. You are the first. <laughs> so it's the danger of abusing scripture, of just uh, treating it. Um, I saw a skit one time and they were uh, uh, kind of joking about sometimes the way within the extreme sort of charismatic circles. And, uh, and he, he, he made this, he's like, you know, I'm going to show you things that aren't even there. Uh, as he was talking about the Bible, and that's so often uh, that that's the case. The danger of wrong doctrine. And this could go under misapplication, but in Matthew 15, uh, 1 through 9, he mentions that by your tradition, you invalidate the word of God. By your tradition, you've invalidated the word of God. And things get more serious at this point. I mean, th- those others are serious, but the danger of wrong doctrine. Uh, it goes, and it goes further than, however, in misapplying Scripture uh, to actually creating truth that opposes Scripture and goes against the meaning and the intent of God uh, in His Word. Uh, the danger of deception. And I'm going through these uh, quickly. Um, the danger of deception. Truth is a protector, right? Truth protects us. How do we protect it from error? You know, the truth. Uh, we've already alluded to that. And so if we don't understand the proper way to, uh, we don't come to a proper uh, understanding the meaning of Scripture, then we were more easily uh, deceived. Early on, there were attacks on both the person of Christ, the nature of the atonement, the resurrection, the relationship of the believer to the law of God, the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles in light of the gospel, the future plans of God for Israel, the relationship of Christ to the old covenant, the nature of saving faith, the coming of the Antichrist, the nature of the assurance of salvation, and the list could go on on all of those things uh, there is uh, opportunity for wrong doctrine uh, to come in. And that's exactly what the apostle was dealing with, isn't it? Throughout Galatians and Romans and others, where these people were coming in and wrongly, as Judaizers in those cases, and wrongly applying scripture. In John chapter 4, the, the uh, spirits were coming in. He says, uh, you have to test the spirits. Why? Because there's many, many spirits out there that are deceiving spirits. And uh, if they did not speak according to what apostolic doctrine was, then, they were, then it was wrong. But they had to know what that was, First John 4, uh, 1 through 6. So the point is that uh, there is deception. There are false teachers, and so we need to understand what the truth is. Uh, there are gaps. We've talked about this that need to be recognized. This is letter B. Uh, there's a time gap. Uh, we are totally unrelated in our... Uh, contemporary world with uh, the things that were going on back then. And so that's the study part. You have, to, you have to put the effort in to go back and understand as best we can what was going on uh, back then. There's a space gap. Uh, events take place in different lands, parts of the world. Customs gap. They have different customs, laws, and so forth. Uh, like if you wanted to do a marriage proposal and 
you know, you were gonna you were gonna say, well, I read Ruth, and she went and laid down at the you know his Boaz's feet. So I'm gonna try that. Well, that could get lead into a lot of problems nowadays, couldn't it? Uh, so that's just a silly example, but that is the kind of uh, example of what that would be customs. Uh, a language gap, the meaning of terms. We talked about that just a little bit with translation, of why translation is important and why it's important to have a literal translation, a word for word, a formal equivalence as opposed to uh, the other dynamic thought for thought. And then the writing gap, means of communicating and metaphors and imagery and so forth. If you read Ezekiel chapter 1 and you've got these spinning wheels and it's going every direction, do you, do you know what that imagery is of? It's of a, do you remember? It's of a war chariot. Well, that's not going to make any sense unless you go back and understand uh, the, the metaphor uh, of what he is and why God is using that particular metaphor because the whole thing of Ezekiel is God is bringing the judgment, right? He's bringing judgment ultimately and this judgment that's going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction. Here's a war chariot that's coming. And so all of that, it's, it's all wrapped up together with his own intent of writing. Uh, so that's the importance of uh, the writing of the literary gap. So what are some basic principles then of hermeneutics? Just, uh, uh, some, just uh, principles that we understand when we come to read the Bible that just have to become, and, and then again, I'm, they probably are uh, for many of you uh, already, but have to be second nature. I mean, in other words, they're not things that you necessarily have to th- eventually think of every time. You, these are just uh, hopefully become the way you think almost subconsciously about coming to Scripture. But they are this, but we have to distinguish them. One is the idea of authorial intent. Authorial intent. And by authorial intent... Uh, is meant simply this, that the author is intending to make a point in that passage that is a particular point. There's a particular point. Uh, let me give you an example. And you're asking this, this question then when you come to authorial intent. This is a question. Why did the author put this passage here? Why is this passage here? That, that's a simple question. That might sound simple, but I'll tell you, if you read and you stop and ask yourself, just occasionally stop and ask yourself, you'll realize, ah, I don't know why. Uh, why did he put that there? Why, why is this account here? Why did God put this here and not other things, right? Because we know there's many things God didn't say in the life of David and of Jesus and so on. But he said these things, and so he put it there for a reason. So you would ask yourself, why is this here? What is the point of uh, the, the arrangement of the argument? Why... Why is this here? Why is this verse here? Let me give you just one uh, example. And these are just some obvious examples that, that, that are easy to help make the point. Uh, one is in 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11 is about David's sin with Bathsheba and then ultimately against the murder of Uriah. Now, we've talked a little bit about that actually. Well, let me just do this. Sometimes you can have that passage, and it's pre- how is that passage uh, preached on or taught or used almost exclusively? Dangers of sexual temptation. Here's how you avoid sexual temptation, right? The whole story about David was up on his roof. Maybe he should have been out of battle. Bathsheba, she's out bathing on her roof. She's attractive. He looks at her. He doesn't walk away. You know. So here's this whole James kind of two process or James chapter one process of temptation, the lure, the the, the fish swims, you know, swims around the, the lure, and he's tempted, and he sins, and then it brought about uh, death. 
right? Does that make so that's a lot of times how the passage is preached. And that is a legitimate application, but do you think that uh, the writer of first Sam- or Second Samuel is going through and thought, you know what, I think it would really help my readers if I put something in here and just told them, this is how you avoid sexual temptation, and this is bad. Do you think that's what he did? Well, of course not. That's silly. Are there legit- is that a legitimate way to uh, principles you can draw out? Yes. But if we're thinking of authorial intent, that's not why he put the passage there. What is one reason he put the passage there? Anybody? Mariano? Um, to show the, uh, even David, Okay, go ahead. We're on it. Okay, consequences. Well, one is this, is to show God had just made the Davidic promise. Right? You remember us talking about this? He just made a promise to David about this future kingdom that's going to come. And what we noted before is that every time, go through and follow it through, every time a covenant, a specific promise, a, a promise is made like that, there's a note of failure of the one. And the point is to show he's not the answer to Genesis 3.15. He's not the answer to Genesis 3.15. In other words, as great as these men were, they were all sinners in need of redemption themselves. None of them could be the Redeemer. David also is a picture of Israel. Uh, Elect, chosen, uh, blessed by God, and yet failing and and in need of the redemption of of God. Uh, He's a model of then forgiveness and hope, which is... uh, which is uh, what Israel even stands as. And so the reason that he's putting it there, and that also is an explanation for why these troubles were coming into the nation of Israel. Why did all of these things happen? Why did Absalom turn on his father? That was a direct consequence, because what did Nathan say? I'm going to raise up a sword within your own house. Absalom's rebellion was a direct consequence of uh, David's sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah in, in murder. And so it's also explaining why in the life of David, this great king, this, uh, ad- these adversarial relationships have uh, arose in his own household. So that's why it's there. Can you learn about sexual temptation? Absolutely. And, it could, and you can connect all of that. But that's not the authorial intent. And if we treat the passage that way, so if you were to explain that passage or hear that passage preached on, and they were going to be used on... Uh, to teach about sexual temptation, hopefully it would begin with saying, this is why it's here, but now I'm going to tell you there's are some principles, other principles we're going to draw it off on. So you would never want to give the impression that, that that's, uh, that's why it's there. So that's just, again, one obvious example. You could say the same thing about Matthew 4. Why, is the tem- why are those temptations there? Can we talk about the way that Satan tem- uh, attempts, the way that Christ used the Word of God to oppose those temptations and, and, and other things? But is that why Matthew put Matthew 4 there? And it's in the other synoptics too. No. Why did we put, why is Matthew 4 there? What's the authorial intent of Matthew chapter 4? I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but. Well, let me give you a hint. What just happened uh, in Matthew uh, is that Jesus was baptized publicly by John the Baptist. He's beginning his, profe- his ministry as the Messiah. The Spirit, Mark tells us, compelled him to go into the wilderness. So he's not yet started his public ministry. He's going to do that in Matthew after, in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so why is Matthew 4 there? 
say it. Yeah, you know it. He was without sin. This is the Messiah where Israel failed and never could bring about God's promises, never could be the vehicle through which blessing was going to come to the world. It, it never could. There, there had to be... Now, here is Christ. He's a publicly. Here's the one that was God with us. He's just been recognized by John the Baptist, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And now we have, and he is the one who can do that. Where all of God's... has failed, he has succeeded. Where they sinned, he was without sin. He is the one who could be. So the one being brought to you, Israel, is your Messiah, is the one without sin, the one who can be the instrument, the means of God's blessing for the nation. He is then the appearance of the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be found in him. You see, there's, there's theological reasons, and in the flow of Matthew's gospel, why Matthew 4 is there. Theatorial intent. So those are the kind of questions we're asking ourselves. Why is this passage here? And that is where you begin to get the fruit of it. Yeah. Keep, I'm going to get water. I'm just, but you keep talking. Well, intent? well, let let. No, that's great. Let me answer. Let me answer that with a question, and say this: If, for example, uh, Luke, Jesus begins and explains in Luke twenty-four and says, "But it's these things that reveal me," and he begins with the law and the prophets to explain it. So we would have to ask ourselves: But why is Matthew written? Is this a spirituality book of how to live the Christian life? Or is it to reveal Jesus Christ? Right? So, yeah, so those other principles are going to come out. Yeah, of course they are. But why is it there? I mean, God didn't give us scripture to say, um, you know, to be a spiritual help book. We get spiritual help and we learn principles and all the. But it's to reveal Jesus Christ. So Matthew wrote his gospel to reveal Jesus Christ. That's what he says. He says why he's the fulfillment of Scripture. He's God with us. That's why he begins with the genealogy. This is your Messiah. He's revealing Christ to the nation. Here is your Messiah. And, of course, there is an emphasis in Matthew on his kingship and on the kingdom of God. And so in answering that question, uh, we would say, why is Matthew written? It's to reveal Christ. Um, it's, it's not a chapter book and now, okay, here's a section on dealing with temptation. Here's exception, the kingdom of heaven on living righteously, uh, whatever, whatever. It's to reveal Christ. So our first question there is what is this revealing about Christ? What is this revealing about Christ in itself and revealing about Christ in the flow of Matthew's gospel? Uh, is that, does that, is that at all help or... Convince or that's fantastic. I mean, that's what the whole point of this is, and that.
and you're defining Do you realize it's 820? So, yep, we're going to just, well, I have a lot more notes than you do. But let's just at least mention some of these. But this is really good because this is the, the part. This is what's helpful. So, so authorial intent. So that, that is huge. Can you see how huge that is? And I think just to feel how big that is and important it is, um, Ask yourself that question as you're just Bible reading. Maybe just stop at any particular point and ask yourself that question. Why is it here? And see if you can answer that. See if you can answer why that's there, what the argument of the author is. So this is the context, as we mentioned. And, and say, what is, the, what is the point of that? And I think very often what you'll find is like um, you're, you, you stop and you realize, huh, I have to think about that. I have to really think about that. As you become more familiar with Scripture, obviously as you grow, those things become a little bit because you're, you're just more familiar with it. And you've already done that enough times that you know what the point of Philippians is and, and what is argument and so forth. But, but that's always the, our challenge. Is we're asking why is the passage here? And, and let me just um, make just one other footnote with that. This is why if somebody preaches or, um, or even if we study it always only topically, like we're just topically and we're bouncing around from topics and we're not developing the discipline of reading systematically through the word of God, at least through books at the time, we are going to miss the authorial intent. And that's the danger when, when you use a lot of cross-references and you, you've heard this before where texts are taken, uh, you know, text without a context is a pretext. You've heard that. Uh, out of context and misused because they've not taken the time. They just jumped over there and they've never stopped in those verses as they're pulling out of the Old Testament. And all, like They're pulling out of the law, they're pulling out of the prophets, they're pulling out of the Psalms, and they're just kind of using words. And without giving any appreciation, any, any observable appreciation for what was the intent of that verse? What was the intent of that verse? And if you don't understand it, then you're not ready to use that as a cross-reference. I can say just from a, from a teaching side, there have been times uh, I've spent the bulk of my study on a cross-reference, not on the main passage, simply because I had to go back and try to understand and make sure I was using that properly there. And while, uh, so anyway, just at, at sometimes that, that happens. That's not very often, but, uh, but that is important. So authorial intent is extremely, extremely uh, important. Uh, the second is uh, single meaning. Each text has a single meaning. There's uh, one meaning and many applications. Have y'all heard that? Single meaning. There's many applications to a passage, but it has one meaning. Uh, let me give maybe a brief example here. Now, on a, just a very kind of... Uh, maybe, I don't know, kind of a silly, silly kind of level, but it happens... Uh, you hear that. So like if you're reading a marriage book and you come to uh, Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, and then that might be followed by all kinds of examples of ways that you love your wife. You know, you leave her a box of chocolates in the fridge and a rose that she wasn't expecting in the morning. I've heard silly things like, you know, you leave a teddy bear in the freezer. Just silly, silly things. If your life loves teddy bears, that's great. I that, love that. But... 
but that's not, that's not the meaning of the text. Do you, you see the difference? So in order to understand that, you can't jump from just reading husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. How are you going to understand what that means? Thank you. Right. How did Christ love the church? Well, that's going to catapult you in, into Scripture. What does God say about how Christ loves his church? First of all, you'd say this. What does Ephesians teach me about Christ's love for the church? Well, there's massive things that Ephesians teaches us, right? We've seen some of that as Parker's gone through it. Just a taste of it. Of what, how God loves his church with an eternal love, a sovereign love. Uh, a, a completely gracious love, a, a love that, that sent him to die for a people who were dead and following the course of this world and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and so forth. Uh, that is, if we're going to understand that, we're not going to jump into teddy bears and boxes of chocolate. We have to understand what does that mean then in my daily life? What is Christ's love for the church? And then how would that carry over into my marriage? Uh, to love my wife. How do I love... Uh, in my case, how would I love Trish? Well, I have to think, well, who is Christ? How did he love the church? And what does that mean then And how I die to myself? Seek to, um, try to. <laughs> I'm not very good at that uh, so often. But that's the, that's the, so the single meaning, the point is, of this is that there's a single meaning to the text. And then there's many applications to the text. And we want to keep those things uh, distinct. Uh, so we'd never make, and, and here's the danger, so we'd never want to make an application appear to be the meaning. That's where legalism comes in, actually. Legalism comes in is when an application of the text is elevated to the meaning of the text, the level of righteousness, and, and then that's wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. Say it one more time. I'm sorry, I was looking at the clock when you said Okay, well, I would say that you always do. Always. It takes, yeah, and so, the, yes, you always do because as soon as you have ascertained the, the meaning of the text, so what the, which would include the authorial intent and then the single meaning of the text, uh, you always have it with a little bit of meditation. This is where meditation would come in, a thinking of that. So, for example, uh, just take uh, Matthew chapter 4 with, with Christ uh, being shown to be without sin and to be the acceptable Messiah. Well, what are ways that, that we could apply that? Just on that level of understanding the authorial intent. Can you think of ways? I can just think of basic ways that you might not be thinking of in terms of application, but one is, is simply the marvel of Christ as our substitute. If, if we think of that very often, I mean, very deeply, then as we would marvel at Christ and the perfection of Christ as our substitute, we would be struck with, my works cannot con- add anything to, to this. D- d- we're going on an application now. My works cannot add to the perfection of Christ. Uh, my worship is stirred up by thinking of what God has provided. Think about the perfection of Christ and say, what does that say about helplessness? What does that say about my absolute inability to do anything to meet God's righteous standard, that Christ had to come and do that. Uh, 
you could just take that on uh, down and make many from that from the authorial intent. So you would just think about that and uh, and make application. Does that does that hit it all? You could, of course, obviously, once you've understood that, also find. yourself with questions um, and then you would take that truth once you've understood it and then you could have uh, endless ways that you could apply that to specific situations so there would never be any part of scripture that once the meaning is uh, once the meaning is gotten that it couldn't apply because really what we're asking well, let me put it this real we're, we're and what is the significance of that passage to my life what is the significance of that passage in terms of my understanding of Christ, in my terms of trusting him, uh, in my terms of walking righteously in this world? So you're just asking, your, the, the application just simply goes from asking the questions, what is the significance of that? Does that make sense at all? I'm, the look is inquisitive. Well, so there are, and there are obvious, I mean, so, so all of those letters were written to specific churches and to specific individuals and not to us. And all of those things were written to specific, uh, if you go to the Old Testament, to kings. And, and, but what are we learning about that? Applications of that are, I don't know, what, what is something we could think of off the top of our head? Something specific maybe to uh, Eli in 1 Samuel 2, where he's writing about his sons. Well, one is we can look at that and, and understanding the authorial intent is understanding the, the, the high role of the priest and how that was to be uh, act as the, the, the spiritual uh, uh, stand between, mediator between God and his people and how that needed to be holy. So that points us to Christ. There's things about Eli that point us to Christ who is the perfect high priest. There's things there in meditating on that that teach us about our own parent. What did he do? There's, a, there's an application there of priorities. He had put the priority of his family and not wanting to confront his sons above the glory of God. Well, that is understanding it in its context. How do we step out of that and go, are there areas in my life that I am putting something above my obedience to God? Is there a family relationship? Is there some kind of uh, uh, romantic, uh, like you know, marriage or boyfriend-girlfriend kind of relationship or whatever, my children, that I'm placing above obedience to God. So do you see, you understand what was going on there, why that was important in terms of what he was doing, why he was going to punish him, why punishment was coming to Israel. So that was very specific. But as he says in 1 Corinthians 10, those things were written as examples for us too. And we are to learn from those examples. And so we're to go to them and understand what was happening to them, but then we pull out. There's really no part of scripture uh, that was not, I mean, it's never something that's just to be left there in the past. It, it always, though it needs to be understood in its context, has some significance spiritually by way of example, precept, direct teaching uh, that carries over to our own 
understanding of God, his nature, his promises, the consequences of sin, consequences of obedience. and so That was actually in, uh, in terms of application, there was that little specs thing in the workbook, the FOF. Do you all remember that? Now, I always forget the last step. I do not know why I have a mental block on that, but I can get the first four. Uh, sin to forsake, a promise to keep, an example to follow, a command to obey, and then for the life of me, I can't remember the last one. Does anybody remember it? It starts with an S. <laughs> I've said it to myself, I mean, a hundred times, and I can't remember it. Anyway, but those are the kind of questions, applicationally, that you would ask uh, to yourself. Well, th- so that, that those are really, really good. I, I hope I'm answering it well enough to be helpful. But uh, So there's the, the authorial intent, single meaning, literal interpretation, and uh, so by literal interpretation, sometimes that's mocked in terms of like, oh, well, I guess God has wings, right? And the shout, oh, right, right. you know, silly things like that. And those are really silly conversations, uh, right? Obviously not. What's meant by literal interpretation is that we're to take Scripture to literally literally with an understanding of the normal use of human language, of metaphors, hyperbole, illustrations, so on. And so alle- There's even allegory in Scripture, right? Where's the most famous uh, that we would be more familiar with is Galatians 4. There's other examples too, but he says, by way of allegory, Hagar, the son of Hagar, right? And the son of promise and the son of the bondwoman. So it understands that there are all of those normal uses of language, a literal interpretation, uh, understands that. Uh, Here's some some uh, helpful things. We are to take a text literally unless there are clear grammatical clues to do otherwise or the literal meaning would be nonsensical. Let's see, I have some examples here. Uh, Isaiah 55, 12. Uh, Hopefully I didn't write down any wrong... References here, Isaiah. Um, okay. Uh, For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will bring out of joy, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Well, no person with an ounce of common sense is going to think that Isaiah is actually saying the trees are going to come out and start clapping their hands, right? Or it'd be their branches. This isn't a Narnia movie where the trees are alive. Uh, it's not like that. And so... Or the mountains and the hills break forth with shouts of joy like a mouth is going to develop on a mountain and he's going to start making a shout of joy. Do you see what I'm saying? But some would say, well, you're going to take that literally. And it was like, you want to say, no, dummy. Of course not. (laughs) That's not what's meant there. That was probably too harsh, wasn't it? Uh, I was meant that just kind of kidding, actually. But I shouldn't do (laughs) But... But it is kind of that silly kind of conversation. Well, of course not. I mean, there's a normal use of language. Nobody would take that an absurdity like that. But that's not. It's 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 giving a picture here of joy of all creation rejoicing in the glory of God. So if it if it would be nonsensical, if it would be impossible, let's see, I have Jeremiah one eighteen written down here under impossible. Jeremiah one eighteen says. Now behold, I have made I have made you today as a fortified. Okay, 
I've made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and so forth. Um, what is he meaning there? Is he going to be a pillar of bronze? Well, of course he's not going to turn him into a pillar of bronze. But, but the idea of bronze and pillar presents a picture, doesn't it? A very strong picture of what? Immovable, strong, stable. Right, so that's he's going to he's going to be make him a prophet who is not easily easily cast down, who will be strong in the face of adversity and so forth. So, we do this when we say things like "Whoa, hold your horses!" <laughs> right, we don't we're not talking about it. that smooth. Or I told you a thousand times, things like that. Well, Scripture uses that language in the normal sense like that too. Scripture will not counter, contradict Scripture. Uh, there's a quote there. We just don't have time to go through all this. But but I do, let's at least, let me at least mention some, interpret scripture. That is maybe enough on its own, clear enough. But number six, clearer passages take precedence over obscure ones. And let me let me just at least make comments on that because that's a really important one. Principle, clearer passages take precedence over obscure ones. So some passages in Scripture are very clear, and some passages are more obscure or less clear, right? So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, So then what will they do who are baptized for the dead? Baptized for the dead? What does that mean? Well, that verse actually is one of the most, uh, as you can imagine, uh, the longest list of interpretations on it. So when we come to something like that, really there are passages there uh, where his readers would have understood that exactly. So when he wrote to the Corinthians, they would have understood that. That wasn't unclear. And while there are reasonable of, of those long lists, there are some arranged that are, are very reasonable and they fit within the context of Corinthians and what he could have been talking about and so on and so forth. But when we understand clearer passages interpret obscure classes, passages, how would that principle apply to that statement? See, this is why it's too bad that we have to go quickly because there's a lot of specific examples I have here to work through. But um, Because it's easy to understand as a principle, applying it becomes the more difficult thing. How do we apply that to specific uh, situations? Well, for one, we would just start with passages about baptism. Right, we would understand that he's very clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or it's appointed man to die once and then comes the judgment. So we would take clear passages like that and go, well, I can tell you this, what he's not saying. I can tell you what he's not saying. What he is saying might be a little more difficult for me to be precise on. But I can be guarded because these clear passages protect me from going in the wrong direction on these obscure passages. Do you remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3? He says there are some things hard to understand. Now, he probably wasn't talking about this kind of thing, but that which some people come in and distort, and they try to... That's what they do. They go to the obscure passages, and they create these theologies that are not consistent with Scripture. That would be, for example, one example of how, like when we talked about in, in the canon, that it has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. Do you remember that point of how they determined what was one of those principles was that it's consistent with orthodoxy, with what was recognized to be Scripture. Uh, so you're not going to take some obscure things or these bizarre things and go, well, 
While I may not be able to give a direct answer on that, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Why? Because there's plenty of clear passages about baptism uh, uh, and, and other things that guard me. Uh, what about, uh, for example, um, well, well, anyway, there's many examples here. Uh, but the, the, the point is, that one's enough uh, to say uh, clear passages take precedence over obscure ones. Yeah. You can look at the progress of Revelation. Man, this is so hard to go over all these, but I could just encourage you to... If you wanted to, if anybody wanted to, I mean, Parker's doing his class on Tuesday. I don't know. He's obviously very busy. If anybody wanted to do just something on hermeneutics, I would be more than happy uh, to have a time just to do that on hermeneutics if you wanted to, to go over and, and we could take time looking at these examples and, and talk about it a lot more. Uh, really, just looking at the one little line there is not going to necessarily be as helpful. Uh, but there's word studies, cross-referencing, parable, parables, uh, and prophecy. Those are all huge topics. Um, you can look over those. If y'all, anybody wanted to, to spend more time on that, I'd be more happy to. Uh, let's just jump down to uh, some of the basic practice, and there's uh, what was mentioned earlier. Context, context, context. Uh, that is, if you had one primary, beginning, cornerstone, hermeneutical principle, it would be the context. Know the context. How much error is crept in and misunderstanding simply because the context is not understood? Uh, it's just kind of pulled out of nowhere as if, you know, if you go in and you want to jump into any passage, it's almost like you can just parachute in there, you know, and then take, take that. It's like you can't. He didn't just write that verse, you know. He didn't write a bunch of pithy little statements and just put them into a book. And, you know, he wrote, those were all statements. When we pull out verses, those are a part of a letter. That is a part of an argument. That is a part of uh, a message to a people. Do you see what I'm saying? So context is extremely important. And observation takes time and use of the brain. Uh, and those are, actually, observation is a big topic. Memorizing scripture and meditating on scripture. Let's just at least end with this quote on meditating on scripture. Now, you'll be glad I did you a favor on this. I put it down in the footnote. And uh, he wrote this in the 1600s. And so it, throughout this whole book, uh, the S's are F's. And so you just kind of have to get used to that. They put their F's. So if we were to be there, it'd be many scholars and, uh, who are in Christ, you know, that kind of thing. So, it's, it's so anyway, I changed all the F's to the S's. So it's easier to read, yes. I wish somebody would have done that for me. Um, but here, here's his quote. This is good. This is a really great work. Um, he says, There are many great scholars that meditate much of God and Christ in heaven. And let me just back up actually before I say this. Um, even on meditation, uh, and this goes to what we talked about with translation, about if you don't have an accurate representation of you know, the, the underlying original languages... Most of us are not going to know the original languages, but we at least get translations that are faithful representations of it. Uh, you can meditate on things that are wrong, right, that weren't actually there. Well, that same thing carries over in terms of our study. If we don't have the right hermeneutic, if we don't have the right meaning, then we can be meditating on things that are wrong. So this meditation is assuming we've already done the other part. 
right? It, we've, already, we've already gotten to the meaning of it, and now we're meditating on the meaning of it, having already applied these principles to make sure we're not in some wrong direction. So I just want to say that there, there's, a, there's a context to these statements. There are many great scholars that meditate much of God and Christ and heaven, and yet they are never the holier for their meditations. And the reason is because they meditate on these things merely to find out curious notions of God and Christ and heaven. But they do not meditate on these things to get their hearts affected, to get heavenly and divine hearts. And therefore you shall see many scholars and, un, as, and, and undevout and as unholy as other people, though they know more and meditate more. But the honest, godly man in his meditation is all for practice. He meditates of sin to hate it, of the sacrament to hunger after it, of God to love him, of Christ to be inflamed with a desire after him. Meditation must enter into three doors or else it will never do you any good. It must enter into the door of the understanding. It must in- get into the door of thy heart and the door of your conversation. So when we meditate, if we could just leave on that one thought, um, we have to understand it, we have to read it, we have to get it, but where our hearts are changed and we are um, um, compelled in our communion with God is through meditation. It's through meditation. And that is a big topic that would be great to talk about. Let me just at least leave you with this thought. Is while reading... Beg pardon. Uh, while reading and uh, study and memorization and prayer are very distinct activities that can be talked of, spoken of on their own, they also um, are part of this sort of mosaic of our spiritual life and our communion with God. So in other words, uh, when you read, we, what I would encourage against is not segmenting things so much where it's like, I've, I've, okay, I've got this chapter I'm going to read, I've read that, and now I'm going to maybe do a study part, and then now I'm going to do a meditation part. That all happens together. It all happens together. Prayer and reading, that should be a, it's a living word with the living God, and we have the living spirit within us. So all of that should really be where we develop and understand it as a common. Remember that, that Piper article that was so helpful in the morning that God spoke to me? That's how we should view scripture and reading, is that as we're reading it, uh, we should also be quickly responding to prayer as we're impacted in understanding, asking God learning into what he's saying. Uh, Stopping to think about how that applies to something. Like we're not just going to finish reading. We're going to scripture to commune with God. To spend time with him, with our father and with our Lord who is in us by his spirit. And so we have to change the way that we think about scripture and when we read it. And so uh, while that takes on somewhat different dynamic each time. Sometimes you, you maybe are just, you're trying to learn something or you're looking for something. Or you're just trying to be familiar with what he says. But what, what I'm seeing is that the, the, the general sort of dynamic of our life is that we're coming to this as the living word. And we are, we are talking to God as we're reading. We're meditating, making sure to not be so rushed all the time uh, that we don't have time to stop and to think about what ourselves... We didn't get to so much here, but to ask ourselves these questions as we're going through, to stop and ask, why is this here? Um... Uh, and to ask those kind of questions. Uh, so, and, and memorization is the same way. 
even as we're memorizing, we're praying uh, about, uh, if you're memorizing scripture, I would suggest that you're also praying that scripture as you're memorizing it and you're communing with God over it. And that also makes it sink deeper into the heart. So um, hopefully that's helpful. Anything else? Anybody want to say? We're a little bit over. The time just flies. Does it fly by for you? It flies by for me. Um, maybe not for you, but if you're talking, it flies by. Uh, let's pray. And then we will move on. Not next week. Remember, I'll be gone next week. But then the following week, we'll move on then to the attributes of God. And we will attempt to do that in one, one shot. I think. One or two shots. Let me pray. Father, help us to uh, help us to live out our spiritual life um, in deep fellowship with you through your word and increase in our hunger for your word, uh, not simply as some external thing where we just go to gain knowledge or we know that that's what we should do, but we truly go to it as your living word to us, where we commune with you and and while there are disciplines involved and while there's hard work and while there are times we don't necessarily um, have an emotional uh, experience, uh, we should always go uh, in faith realizing that you are there with us, that you are active in our Bible reading and help us to better to, to uh, commune in the immediate as we're reading. In other words, to pray as we read, to do, as we to meditate, as we read, to, to have your word more a part of just our our thoughts and our souls and our thinking, and this is a lifetime, Father. Help us to be patient too, and know that this doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen over a week or a month, but it happens over a lifetime of us learning to uh, approach your word rightly and uh, apply all of these things that we're learning uh, as a habit of life. And I do pray that you would grow us each uh, more and more in the, in the true depth of our worship and our obedience to you. And, um, and, and as we walk with you, seek to walk with you faithfully in this world, glorifying you. And I pray that even uh, as each has shared prayer requests, that their, their own knowledge of the word of each in this room, including myself, would, would also know your word better able so we could minister to others. As we know you, we're better able to serve others and communicate your truth and your gospel in a way that is helpful uh, to them. And so that is also, Lord, why we want to, to know your word well. I thank you for our time tonight. Uh, thank you for your son. Thank you for our Savior and your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Yep. The big four four. Forty four. Yep. <laughs>